How important is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? The question came up just a week ago in a conversation I had on a train back from New World Alive. It was a seven-hour journey from Wales, during which I met two gentlemen sitting across from me as I was reading my Bible. We got to talking about God, different world religions, and even the reliability of the New Testament. Eventually, we got to the resurrection. I said that it was so important to know and decide if what the Bible said was true. Did Jesus really die for our sins? Did he rise from the dead? Both of them were elderly men. G was visiting his wife in hospital. It involved taking a train, then a bus. It was a considerable distance, and he did this every day. S was dressed in a white shirt and a black suit. He was on his way to a funeral. G and S were regular churchgoers, as far as I could tell from our conversation. For them, Jesus was a good man, but he did not die for our sins, and Jesus did not rise on the third day. There are many perspectives, said G, to Jesus and to the Bible, and we need to consider them all. What do you think? Is the resurrection true or just a point of view? Today, we look to a passage in the Bible that gives us not one but three different perspectives to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28 is a record of the events that occurred that first Easter Sunday, three days after Jesus was crucified and buried in the tomb. He tells the story from three different viewpoints. We meet three groups of people in this passage, the women, verses 1 to 10, the guards, verses 11 to 15, and finally, the closest friends and disciples of Jesus, verses 16 to 20. In doing so, the Bible presents us with the evidence for the resurrection, but also the different responses to that same evidence, as well as the motivation behind these responses. We begin with the women. Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. These women are amazing. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record how women were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. They were the first to meet the resurrected Jesus, if only because of this one simple reason. They stuck around. When Jesus was crucified, the women were there. This is Matthew 27, verses 55 onwards. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph's, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. When Jesus was buried, there were the same women, Mary and Mary. Matthew 27, verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So, our passage today opens with the two Marys making their way to the tomb once again. It is the same reason why anyone goes to visit the grave of someone they love. They are grieving. Verse 1 says they went to look at the tomb. The resurrection was far from their minds. And what they saw next would have been almost beyond belief. Matthew 28 verses 2 onwards. There was a violent earthquake, 
For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Grown men froze in fear at the sight. An angel descended from heaven, causes an earthquake, and rolls back the huge stone blocking the entrance to the tomb. Then the angel sits on top of the stone. Why? Not to let Jesus out. That's what I used to think. Jesus was stuck in there, let me out, let me out. So God sends this angelic being to the rescue to let Jesus out. No. The reason God sent the angel and rolled away the stone was to let the women in. Verse 5. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. The women came to look at the tomb, verse 1. So the angel shows them the empty tomb. Come and see, the angel says. See the place where Jesus lay. But really, in their hearts, they wanted to see Jesus. Verse 5. I know you are looking for Jesus, the angel says to them. He is not here. Verse 6. Seeing is believing. For many, that is what it takes. If only God would show himself, do something spectacular before my very eyes, then I would trust him. Only then would I believe these extraordinary claims in the Bible. But the women weren't the only eyewitnesses at the scene the guards, they were there too. They saw the angel. They saw everything, verse 11. Yet they did not believe. No, we need to read on to understand why these women understood what they saw as well as what they heard, verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples, Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Verse 9 really struck me when I read it this week. They met Jesus. And the question I have been asking this text all week has been, why here? Why did Jesus make his appearance here? I mean, why didn't he meet them at the tomb? We read from verse 8, the women are on their way leaving the tomb to meet the disciples as the angel had instructed them. But along the way, Jesus suddenly, the text tells us, meets them. Two reasons, based on what they did and based on what Jesus said. Firstly, what these women did when they met Jesus. They, verse 9, came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. The moment they saw Jesus in the flesh, they bowed down and grabbed his feet. You see, the empty tomb means the resurrection is reasonable. We can believe and we should believe in the resurrection based purely on the evidence of the New Testament. But really, the reason why we ultimately do believe is love. The presence of the resurrected Jesus makes his love real 
and our love for him compelling. I think in part, and I really must stress this bit is just my inference, Jesus wanted to see these women, these amazing women who had stuck around, who saw him tortured and hanging from the cross, who sat across the tomb just to watch his body being carried in. These women loved Jesus. That much is plainly obvious. It must have been unbearable witnessing the crucifixion. But they couldn't leave him. They had to be there. Remember what the angel said back in verse 5. I know that you are looking for Jesus. And here in verse 9, they see him and they grab his feet. Jesus, it's really you. And I think Jesus too wanted to see them. He saw their hearts. He knew their anguish and their pain. The moment they heard the news from the angel, the women were filled with fear, but also with joy, verse 8. And Jesus wanted to complete that joy. He wanted them to see him. But I think that he too wanted to see them. You know, women put us to shame when it comes to worship. That's what they did in verse 9. They worshiped Jesus. We men turn up in church and we try our best to look cool and in control. To stand up and sing a song about Jesus, that's really tough on our egos. Oh, we don't mind the songs that talk about Jesus as our conquering king, the Christian life as a battle. Those kinds of songs we'll sing with gusto. But anything that has words like, I love you, Lord, or Jesus, lover, of my soul. Come on, you know, we're men. Please don't give us songs with words like, the heart of the bride belongs to Jesus. Men, the women put us to shame. They understand what it means to love Jesus and worship him and wait for him and rejoice in his presence. Where were the men? When Jesus was crucified. Sure, we see Joseph approaching Pilate for the body, but the disciples, those closest to Jesus, they fled. The women remained. They stayed. The men at the tomb, the guards, they just froze in fear. Now the women too were fearful, verse 8, but they were also joyful. They responded in obedience, hurrying and running to tell the disciples. And Jesus appeared to them, to these women, to honor their joy and obedience. He loved them for their devotion and faithfulness to him. All throughout the events of the cross and burial, and now in response to the news of the resurrection, Jesus loved these women. That's the first reason. Because of what these women did. They waited and then they worshipped. But the second reason is verse 10. What Jesus said. Verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now look back to verse 6. This is exactly what the angel tells the women back at the tomb. Jesus has risen and is going to Galilee. Now tell the disciples to go there because there they will see him. The angel was a messenger. And as important as it was for the women to see what they saw, it was even more vital that they heard what the angel had to say. Verse 6, He has risen 
just as he has said. All throughout his life and ministry, Jesus spoke clearly and repeatedly and emphatically about his death and his resurrection. Back in chapter 16 and verse 21, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Again in chapter 20, before entering Jerusalem, and again in chapter 26, where interestingly we also find these words to Peter, after, but after I've risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee, Matthew 26, verse 32. Meaning this, Jesus knew he would die, and Jesus told his disciples he would rise again. In fact, he says in chapter 16 that he must die. It was his will and plan to suffer on the cross. The angel was reminding the women of Jesus' words. This was his primary mission, to convey a message. Now I have told you, he says at the end of verse 7. As if to say, there, the job is done. Phew, I got the message through. But then, the women are now to carry the same message to the disciples. I have come to tell you what you are to tell the disciples, what Jesus told you all this while. There, I've told you, or, or something along those lines. And now Jesus appears while they are on the way back to tell the disciples. Curiously enough, he repeats the same exact message as the angel? The question is why? Why? Something very significant is happening here. It is almost as if there is an intentional separation of and sequence to these two events. First, the word from God. Then, the appearance of Jesus. And I think... Jesus makes his appearance only here to say to the women, What you heard back at the tomb, those were my words to you. And now the words you carry to the disciples, those are my words to them. Jesus is giving weight to their witness, weight to their words. These are the words of God. When you speak, I speak. What we need to see at the heart of this message is faithfulness. God's word in his promise. When we give his word, when he gives us his word, sorry, he is promising that he will do something in accordance to that word. I would even go as far as to say God never does anything that does not reveal himself according to his word. That's a pretty bold statement, but it is true. God reveals his will in his word. And God acts with such integrity and faithfulness that he never does one single thing outside of his will in his word. The guards don't understand what happened at the tomb because they did not understand the message. It wasn't for them. Perhaps they didn't hear the angel. Perhaps they just didn't get it. You see, it isn't about knowing that there was such a person named Jesus, that he died, that he rose again. It really is about knowing what God said about Jesus why he died, why he rose from the dead. It is understanding God's word, if you like God's perspective on these events. That is what the women uniquely had because the message was for them, because they trusted in this message. 
That's the Bible's definition of faith. It is to trust, to rely, and to depend on a God who is trustworthy, reliable, and dependable. Jesus said this would happen, and it happened. As Jesus said, it would happen. But next, we see the guards also carrying the message. We see a different response to this message, and this is verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. I should clarify, it is not normal to have guards stationed at the tomb. You have guards at a bank in front of Buckingham Palace. You even have guards patrolling the Grafton Center. But these men were sent to stand guard in front of Jesus' tomb. That is strange, unusual. Matthew tells us why at the end of chapter 27 and verse 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Now look back to verse 13. What was the reason the chief priests and elders had for the missing body? They said his disciples came during the night and stole him away. Even before any of this happened, they had already decided in their minds what had happened. It was a pre-decision. They had made their minds up. You get a lot of conspiracy theories today about Jesus. Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code says that the church made the whole thing up. Some will say that Jesus faked his death. None of this is true, they are elaborate lies designed to trick the gullible and simple-minded. Now, what I want you to notice is that these conspiracy theories aren't new. They were around 2,000 years ago. And yet, notice that even those who opposed Jesus never doubted that he died. They made sure that he died. Don't believe the nonsense about Jesus faking his death. The religious leaders and the Roman authorities did not have any doubt that he died on the cross. Their concern was making sure he stayed dead. That's why they stationed guards. They put the seal on the tomb to make sure no one could sneak in and steal his dead body. Yet, at the same time, we see them making up their minds to such a degree that nothing, absolutely nothing, would change their minds, not even the testimony of the guards they had put there at the tomb. The problem with conspiracy theories is not that they are compelling or true. It is that many who hear them have no interest in the truth. Its purpose is not to explain, but to explain away. I wonder how many of you have read The Da Vinci Code or seen the movie. I have. And yet, how many of you have read the Bible? <laughs> Maybe today is the first time you ever read Matthew chapter 28. And by all means, by all means, disagree. Question the facts. But at least you are disagreeing with the actual claims of the Bible. They are pretty amazing claims, almost, 
unbelievable. When it came to the claims of the resurrection, even the disciples were surprised. No one, absolutely no one expected this. I need to stress this. No one doubted Jesus died. His body was in the tomb. But everyone doubted when they heard he had risen. The women were surprised. And we'll see soon, even those closest to Jesus were still hesitant about the resurrection. The Bible is honest and even open about their reactions. So we should be honest about ours. What reason do you have for doubting the resurrection? Is it because you have only ever heard the objections? Or is it because of verse 14? Verse 14. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. <laughs> so the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. It is talking about the guards. They were there. They saw and heard everything. Yet for them, it wasn't a conspiracy theory that made them question the resurrection. The Bible gives us a much simpler reason. They didn't want to get into trouble. Verse 14. They were paid to look the other way. Verse 15. Self-preservation and self-fulfillment. What can I get out of this? So today, Easter Sunday, is the day we buy one another chocolate eggs. We will greet one another with Happy Easter as you walk into the building. I was coming in earlier and said, and someone said to me, Happy Easter. And I responded, Yes, Jesus is risen from the grave. He is ascended on high. Stunned expressions. They said, Well, enjoy your time of praise later, they said. <laughs> it's weird talking about Jesus on Easter Sunday to mention the cross to point to the resurrection from the dead. People give you funny looks. And yet, that is the reason that churchgoers, church, the church gathers, not just this one Sunday in the year, but every Sunday. It is the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every week on Sunday, the first day, we remember that Jesus rose from the grave. One day, so will we. I'm not too bothered whether we make a big deal about today. You know, I don't see Easter Sunday morning as more holy or special than, say, tomorrow afternoon. But I am concerned about this. If we do talk about Easter, we have to talk about Jesus. Not just give out chocolate bunnies to kids and sing nice songs about Jesus risen in our hearts. Like the guards, we don't want to get into trouble. So when our colleagues ask us what we did over the long weekend, we'll talk about the trip to London, the hot weather, the funny story about the cream egg we left in our pocket. We hesitate to talk about Jesus. Like the guards, we sell out. We want Easter to be more like Christmas with the presents and food and fun, all of which is wonderful and good, but also such a shame as we exchange the truth for gain and convenience. We Chinese call it prudence. I have exams. I am busy at work. There's a good movie on there's something more worthwhile than Jesus. Everything in our Chinese culture says, that's okay. God understands. The Bible calls it what it is, selling out. I do this all the time. I reject the truth, not because it isn't true, but because it is inconvenient. Notice this is not a case of not having the truth or being ignorant of the truth. 
as much as it is a flat-out denial of the truth. It is the exchange of the truth for a lie. So much so that verse 15 tells us these guards had to be instructed how to perpetuate the lie. Literally, the word is taught, edidakthesan, which stands in contrast to verse 20, where the disciples are to teach Christians to obey Christ. So here, the religious teachers teach these soldiers to lie. Not that it is hard to lie. Little children know how to lie without anyone teaching them. It comes quite naturally. I didn't do it. It wasn't my fault. My dog ate my homework. Yet it is hard to keep track of your lies, especially when it comes into contact with the truth. You need one lie to cover up another lie. In the case of these soldiers, they have to lie about the body being stolen, then lie about themselves being asleep as the disciples snuck in to steal the body, and then lie to the governor about how they let the body get stolen in the first place. I don't mean to sound offensive. That isn't the reason why Matthew records the perspective of the guards, not to show up how evil and wicked these soldiers were. But I do read this account and think to myself, what a shame. What a shame. I'm sure if I were there, I would have questioned what I saw. I wouldn't have done much better than them. Of course, I would have had more doubts and more questions after the incident at the tomb. And yet, and yet, they didn't resolve their doubts through reason nor investigation. They reached their conclusions simply by means of self-interest. What was more profitable? What a shame to have been there at the tomb and seen the angel, heard the explanation of the resurrection, but then to close their minds because of love for money and fear of men. What a shame. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. So the disciples must have got the message from the women to leave Jerusalem and head for their hometown up north, Galilee, traveling up the mountain as instructed. These weren't just any disciples. These were the eleven, the closest followers who had been with Jesus throughout his three-year ministry. Jesus' closest friends, his brothers, as he calls them in verse 10. Jesus appears to them. They see him, and falling to their knees, they worship Jesus. As with the women, Jesus accepts their worship. But some doubt it. I love this verse. I know everyone memorizes verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission. They carve these words into the entrances at the churches. Go and make disciples. For me, however, the diamond is found here, hidden in the rough of verse 17. But some doubt it. Jesus is right in front of their eyes. He is risen from the dead. Yet some of the disciples are going, uh, I'm not, not very sure. <laughs> that is amazing. Moreover, that is just so encouraging. Christians have doubts. The longer you are a Christian, perhaps the more doubts you will have. And it is so comforting to find in the Bible an acknowledgement of our doubts, our fears, our insecurities, and our worries. So you have one John written with this express purpose at the end. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that 
you may know that you have eternal life. Who is he writing to? Those who believe in the name of the Son of God, meaning Christians. Why is he writing to Christians? So that they know they have eternal life. Conclusion, some Christians can be unsure about something as fundamental as eternal life that the Apostle John has to write a whole letter about it. That's brilliant. Yet it is worth asking the question, why were some of the eleven disciples hesitant upon seeing Jesus face to face? What was it about Jesus that gave rise to their doubts? You see, their doubt wasn't, is this really Jesus? Unlike the fantastic description of the angel back in verse 3, with the appearance like lightning, with clothes white as snow, there are no fireworks in Matthew's description of Jesus here. That's pretty important. If anything, the Gospels record how frequently the eyewitnesses did not notice anything spectacular about Jesus after his resurrection. Luke tells us two guys walked seven miles chatting with Jesus without noticing who he was. The text says they were kept from recognizing him, which is likely referring to his identity rather than any supernatural qualities that were hidden. In John's gospel, Mary initially mistakes Jesus for the gardener. You know, I live on a street with lots of senior citizens out early in the morning meticulously working on their gardens. I assure you, they look quite ordinary. And Jesus had meals with his followers. Apparently, he likes fish. This is all to say that when the first eyewitnesses saw Jesus, they recognized him as Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, adding the words, most of whom are still alive. Don't miss that. Paul is saying, you want to know if Jesus really rose from the dead? Go, to talk, go talk to that guy. He actually met him. The New Testament is unabashedly honest about the fact that the resurrected Jesus was real, widely attested to, and stands up to close scrutiny. So, if anyone were to be able to recognize Jesus, it would have been his closest friends. But the question remains, why did they have doubts? Why did they have doubts? The disciples would have had doubts, no doubt that this was Jesus, but there would have been doubt as to whether they were still his disciples. They had abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. Everyone left him. These, the eleven, who boldly made claims of bravado and allegiance to their teacher, like when Thomas declared, let us go that we may die with him, John eleven sixteen, Or when Peter said to Jesus' face, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And Matthew then records, And all the other disciples said the same. This is Matthew 26, verse 35. Yet Jesus himself predicted that they would leave him. You will all fall away on account of of me, Matthew 26, verse 31. And now for the disciples to be faced with the resurrected Jesus standing before them saying these words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The sight would have, been, would have filled them with awe, with fear, with terror, and with regret. Jesus really was the Christ. He was their Messiah. Jesus has now been raised from the grave, just as he said. He is the risen King and Judge. 
and it would have dawned on these eleven disciples. They had betrayed the king of the universe. He had loved them all these years. They had betrayed his love. You see, they doubted whether Jesus would accept them, whether Jesus could forgive them. Verse 18 tells us Jesus most certainly did. Verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, Jesus knew the hesitation in their hearts. He came to them and he spoke to them. Remember the message that brought them here in the first place. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. My brothers. Jesus calls them my brothers. Jesus came to call them his brothers. In fact, he came to suffer, to die, that they might be called his brothers and bring them back to God. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 says this, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. To be called brother by the Lord Jesus Christ is to be in his family. It means that God is our heavenly father. It means we are accepted as his children and Jesus, made to be like us, perfected through his suffering, he understands. He understands what we go through when we suffer. He knows our fears, and he empathizes. So finally, we come to these famous last words in Matthew's Gospel, known as the Great Commission, a charge given by Jesus himself to his followers to spread the message of the gospel, bringing many from all peoples into his kingdom. And yet, I suggest we could also call these words Jesus' great promise. Its greatness is seen not merely in its spread and size, all authority, all peoples, all commands, but perhaps more so in the very personal promise he gives at the end. It is the promise of his presence. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The authority that Jesus receives as Lord and Christ through his resurrection is now passed on. Notice how verse 19 begins. Therefore, the reason the disciples can fulfill this mission is because Jesus has received all authority by way of the cross. And authority he now mediates to his followers to teach others. Not to conquer, not to condemn, not to subjugate, but to teach. That's what the word disciple means. It simply means student, someone who learns. But more than learn, they are to obey everything I have commanded you, Jesus says to them. In other words, what we learn as Christians is to obey and submit to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. This is where baptism comes in. A person is baptized or dunked in water to signify his being lowered into the grave. He is then raised out of the water as a sign of new birth. 
it is identifying with Jesus' death and resurrection. He has died our death. He was raised to everlasting life. Hence, we are baptized into the name. Notice that it's a singular, there is but one name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has done this. It is not our baptism that saved, saves us, but God. Baptism is the outward symbol of the inner reality and work of Jesus dying for our sins and raising us to new life. As learners or students or disciples, we do not submit in order to be saved. We have been saved. And we submit to and obey the God who has saved us. With this command comes a promise. Surely I am with you always, Jesus says, to the very end of the age. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I will never leave you, ever. It is a promise he is only able to make because of the resurrection. It is a promise we have seen fulfilled even within this chapter, and we need to see this. It comes to his disciples through his word. Remember what I said earlier, God never does anything in his will apart from his word. The reality of the resurrection, which is what this whole chapter is about, Jesus raised from the dead, is not a series of cold, hard facts to be analyzed, thought over, and debated. It is God's promise. Jesus gives the promise of his word and fulfills that promise through his presence. We saw that with the women, they received the message from the angel. And while carrying that message in eagerness and in obedience, they meet Jesus. We saw that with the disciples, they received the same message spoken by the angel, spoken by Jesus, passed on by the women. And they obeyed, traveling to Galilee where they meet with the resurrected Jesus. God's word spoken and God's will done. Jesus' promise relayed and his presence mediated. And now Jesus does the same with us. Tell others the message of the cross and resurrection and I will always, always be with you. Why is this significant? Because of death. We only begin to appreciate the miracle of life when we understand the certainty of death. The problem is we often deny death. Hence, we devalue life. The two men I met on the train last week understood this. They were on a journey to face the reality of death death was real but it simply wasn't the prospect of their own deaths that they were facing it was the death of someone they knew someone they loved they understood that death meant separation from those we know and love the physical and bodily resurrection of jesus christ from the dead means many things now i shouldn't make that sound so flippant the resurrection is cosmic and life-changing in its implication. It means death is destroyed. Jesus has conquered death as an enemy by taking the punishment of sin, which is death, upon himself. It means sin is forgiven. God poured out his anger and judgment for our sin and rebellion against him upon Jesus on the cross. It means sin is defeated. It is no longer sin that has a hold on us. We submit to a new master, our Lord Jesus. It means Jesus is the Christ. He has received all authority and power from God to rule and to judge. And one day he will return, this time not to bear sin, but to judge the devil and all those who oppose him. It means we will be raised from the dead, 
to receive everlasting life or everlasting judgment in hell. It means God's word is true. All his promises made clear in his word, given us in the Bible, are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It means suffering has a purpose and an end. One day, Jesus will put an end to all suffering. But till then, our present suffering in this present sinful world is achieving for us glory. The cross and the resurrection is the turning point in all of salvation history. Everything changed that one weekend. And yet, and yet, I think Matthew 28 brings home one additional point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we are no longer separated from God. Matthew 28 and verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promises he is always with us. And the resurrection means he can fulfill and has fulfilled that promise. He will always be with us. I can understand if you have doubts whether the resurrection is true, what I cannot comprehend are Christians who doubt if the resurrection is important to claim to follow Christ and yet to deny his resurrection is simply nonsensical. But moreover, it is pitiful. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What he's saying is this. The most miserable people in all the world are Christians who do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we face death, then it all ends. That's the reality awaiting you if this life is all there is. Your life is just one long train journey with people getting on and people getting off. And one day you reach your stop, but there is no destination, no purpose. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the heart of everything we hold true about God, forgiveness, and eternal life. It means we have a relationship with Jesus today, right here and right now. And it means this relationship will never, ever end.